Hi, and welcome to episode 6 of CavalierCast. I hope you've enjoyed the last two episodes and the fascinating interviews with the curators of the Cromwell Museum and the National Civil War Centre in Newark. CavalierCast, The Civil War in Words, is a podcast that looks at everything and anything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms. You can listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and many more. In this episode, I'll be talking you through the Siege of Bristol, when two royalist armies, one under the command of Prince Rupert and the other the Marquess of Hartford, laid siege to Bristol on the 26th of July, 1643. I'll also be speaking to a very special guest from the Sealed Knot, a society who keep the history of the Civil Wars alive in the form of battle reenactments, memorials, educational visits and living history. The capture of the kingdom's second city brought £100,000 to the king's cause, as well as 18 merchant ships and four warships. These vessels would go on to become the nucleus of a royalist fleet, considering that the Royal Navy was in Parliament's control. Prince Rupert's regiment of bluecoats fought at Bristol and the regiment is commemorated today by living on in the ranks of the Sealed Knot Reenactment Society. Andy George is the commanding officer and he'll be telling me a little more about Rupert, the regiment's history and reenactment itself. So welcome Andy, it's great to talk to you today. Thanks very much Mark, thanks for inviting me along, it's lovely. Pleasure. So how long have you been reenacting then so far Andy? Um, I guess I really started in about 1988. Um, my brother and I were, as little boys, were sort of played with toy soldiers. And um, we, we got a few books from the library um, um, by a chap called Peter Young, Brigadier Peter Young. Um, and reading at the back of those, it said, oh, if you like war game, then perhaps you should join the Sealed Knot. And we always joked and said, yeah, one day we'll join the Sealed Knot. I went to university and uh, about 1988, a friend of mine who I was sharing in halls with, was a member of the knot so i went along with him to three battles during that season and then as students do hadn't quite got enough money so i uh, had to pack it in for the time being i've been borrowing kit for a for a year and then literally um sort of 10 years later i was living in aylesbury and i could hear in the town center drums and fifes going and the hairs on the back of my neck went up and i was like that's not a sealed knot so i dragged my two sons and my wife uh, and we, we 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 shot up to the town square and Rupert's were doing a display for a battle uh, that was coming up. So I started chatting to them and, and, and said, "Oh, oh, well, I used to be a pipeman. Um, have you got any space for pipemen?" And they practically took me arm off at the wrist and signed me up on the spot. So, uh, so that was yeah. So it was about twenty twenty two years ago. So um, and I've worked my way up from pipeman all the way through the ranks. And you know, I was lucky enough to become CO a couple of years ago. Um, we've got a oh, um, 125 on the books at the moment, I think. Wow. Uh, so we've got our own pipe block, own musket block, two musket blocks we usually put out. Um, we've got pioneers who do all the watering and uh, look after the team on the field and our drum block as well. So it's uh, and, and each of those blocks has got their own structure of officers and uh, NCOs and, and troopers as well. So, uh, yeah, it's great. Fantastic. And, and is that what got your interest in the in the Civil War or reenacting, the, you know, the um the book the back of the book and uh the toy soldiers yeah i think so i mean it's a sort of combination of both so i think we checked my brother about it the other day we, we went to see a, a napoleonic reenactment um, in london uh, once and saw that and said oh that'd be fantastic to do that and we're always very into 
sort of military history as, as little kids, you know, Cowboys and Indians and uh, Napoleonics, you know, the Battle of Waterloo, the film Waterloo. And then we started to get into sort of civil war as well. Um, and gradually sort of our, our, both our interests sort of spread. And then when the, the seal knot came up and I thought, yeah, that's, that's going to, I really got into the civil war then and started to delve into the history of that um, and, the, and the characters. And joining Rupert's um, in 98, it was a very um, structured system there where each of the companies was named after one of the officers. And, you know, you sort of encouraged to find out about the officers. Um, I did a little bit of that, but then when I became CO, I really went for it to find out a bit more about each of the guys who'd been um, some of the company commanders in Rupert's. And we're lucky that this this good history kept. Um, the, the Book of Indigent Officers has got a lot of the Rupert's guys listed when they appealed for, for money to, from Charles II after the... Uh, restoration and that's what we find yeah. out about you know all those different guys who are part of it and of course where i live now which is uh quite near to woburn uh, in bedfordshire and that's where the russell family were based and john russell became the de facto commander of uh, rupert's after bristol so it's, it's some quite good links there just by accident how things have come together um so yeah i think the wargaming and the reenactment and enjoying you know black and white films on a sunday afternoon that kind of thing is sort of how i how i sort of you know grew up uh, and then the reenactment has really come with it and both my um both my sons are, are reenactors and my family are part of reenactment as well okay. it does become a bit of a family thing you know with, with a lot of people um so can you tell us just a little bit about the sealed knot as well yeah, I mean, Seal Knot was founded in 1968 by Brigadier Peter Young. He was a uh, an ex-commando and uh, soldier from the 1940s right through. He was retired um, by about that sort of time and wrote a book about Edge Hill. And to publicise it, he held a garden party and people were encouraged to come along in fancy dress. And they said, oh, this is great fun. What we should do, we should meet up, you know, we should go and, we go and fight a, a battle. And the first few times they had imaginary enemy. I think they used to throw thunder flashes over the hedge and have imaginary. And then gradually they, they created a parliament army and it just grew from there, really. Um, and the numbers have sort of gone up and down over the years. I think the 1970s and 80s are probably the heyday of the, of the biggest numbers. Okay. Today, uh, if we put out a major battle, we're putting out, depending on where we are in the country, because, of course, people traveling, that kind of thing, you're probably putting out between 500 and 1,000 people on the field. Um, wow. Don't hold me to that, because sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. But, but certainly, uh, it's, it's around those sort of numbers. It is, it's, it's, it's fairly large and fairly spectacular. And, you know, the fact you've got big ranks of muskets firing, big pipe blocks going in, and as many horse you know, cavalry as you can, galloping around the place and the cannon as well. It just really gives that spectacle for people to come and watch. And it's great fun to be part of as well. And the social life is great after the battle, before the battle, you know, it's uh, meeting friends, yeah. and, uh, you know, sharing the odd uh, lemonade. And, you know, and, and Peter Young's sort of legacy is, is for something for people to have fun and enjoy themselves. Uh, yeah. And certainly that's, that's really what the sealed dot is to, to a lot of us. Um, you know, annually we probably have, um, three to four major battles, and that's where we have the big numbers come along. We have mini battles as well, which are slightly smaller, maybe one, two hundred people on the field or a few less than that. And yeah, small regimental ones, uh, perhaps garrisoning a castle or going to living history shows where people are in their tents and they've got crafts and things going on. So, you know, it really does go from the giant, the giant spectaculars through to doing school visits where perhaps one or two the guys will go along and, and and give demonstrations of weapons and clothing and explain what life was like during the civil war so what what's been the most memorable reenactment for you 
the, the, the biggest battle is very memorable, and that was Cheriton in 2005, where we had over 100 horse on the field and a massive number of troops as well. It was a real biggie. We really sort of, everybody went for it, decided that was going to be a big one. It was an August Bank holiday, which is always a, a great uh, great holiday time for, for people to go along for the battles. And just the sheer amount of noise and the fact the cavalry were galloping left, right and centre around us, um, the number of troops on the field and the fact the public could see the battle from the other side of the valley. They all sat on one side of the valley and the battle was on the other side. So they got a really good panoramic view of you know the, the best well, the, the best you're ever going to get for a, a civil war battle in modern times i would say certainly it, it looked like that yeah. and then in terms of sort of um pageants if you like or or memorials we did the christmas steps in bristol um where we marched down the hill and actually marched down through the christmas steps to rededicate a plaque to colonel henry lunsford who was killed at the siege of bristol in 1643 and that was one of our that's certainly the best memorial one I can remember doing because it, it was so poignant and we had sound effects so you could hear the gunfire as we were coming down the hill and you looked at the housing and you could see how it was such a shooting gallery you see how lethal it would have been and you can see why you know both um, Henry Lunsford and Nathaniel Moore who's the two I see of, of uh, Lunsford's regiment were both killed by shot and they lost so many troops going through it was it was a real sort of uh, butcher's uh butcher's bath in the place it was it was dreadful so that was a, a but to go back there really gave us those sort of hair on the neck kind of uh situation where you're going through you think gosh this was this is where it actually took place uh, and that was fairly amazing so uh, there's, there's two there for you great thanks andy so as you've heard there bristol was a furious affair i call it the mother of all sieges what i'm going to do now is just talk you through a little bit about the events of the siege uh, and what happened that day. And then we'll go back to Andy for a few more questions about Rupert, the regiment, and what happened next. Nobody relishes a Monday morning, but spare a thought for Nathaniel Fines, Parliament's Governor of Bristol. He awoke on Monday the 24th of July, 1643, to a summons from King Charles I's nephew, Rupert of the Rhine. An undefeated royal with a reputation for ruthless cavalry charges and a magical pet poodle. Unfortunately for Fines, 1,200 of his garrison had not long been spirited away to reinforce Parliament's army in the region. An army that had been annihilated outside of Devizes two weeks ago. The heart of Bristol was distinctly medieval. Its houses and streets formed a rabbit warren which led down to the castle in the centre and the buildings of this inner sanctum huddled together in apprehension of the modern world. Beyond the original boundary, the city had developed and expanded to the north. Four miles of earthwork walls had been built on the outer limits and forts now crowned the tops of the hills, studding the city like jewels. It was these forts, part of Fine's cutting-edge defences that most disturbed him, for should they fall into royalist hands, they could turn the guns on Bristol and pulverise the place. To the south, the bastion that was St Mary Redcliffe's church was packed with parliamentarians, and its towers bristled with guns, ready to make any royalist repent. Rupert and his 15,000 men drew up on Durdham Down, and received Fiennes' refusal to capitulate, 
which curiously stated that he could not do so until brought to more extremity. On Tuesday, the prince held a council of war to decide whether to storm or starve Bristol. To starve it into submission would expend the one resource that he was lacking, time. Therefore, the decision was taken to strike at daybreak on Wednesday. But at three in the morning, Rupert was confronted by flashes of gunshot and the din of battle. On the south side of the city, the Cornish royalists had been conducting feints to keep the 1,800 parliamentarians on the alert all night. But the tinners could stand it no longer and had decided to burrow into Bristol's defences, regardless of the time. To the north, the prince quickly signalled a general assault by the earth-shattering fire of a demi-cannon. The brave Cornishmen sped to the southern walls, but their siege equipment was not so quick. A defensive ditch in front of the city halted them in their tracks, and at nearly eight metres wide and three metres deep, seemed to lead down to the pits of hell. While they waited for equipment to enable the crossing and siege ladders to scale the walls, the ditch became the makeshift grave for many caught by a deluge of parliamentarian shot. It wasn't long before the commanders of all three Cornish regiments were killed and the southern attack faltered. The Cornish could do nothing now but pull back out of range and wait. In the north, Rupert's short fuse saw him launch along the ranks of his attacking men exhorting them not to run, shoring up morale, and when two of his three northern commanders were killed or wounded, he provided much-needed leadership. The Royalists' arsenal was boosted by fireworks, which burst above them and lit up the night sky. Rupert's horse was shot from under him, yet he walked away without altering his pace, providing the parliamentarians with further proof that he and his dog boy were protected by evil. Despite all of his best efforts in the north, Rupert the Devil's three-pronged pitchfork had failed to penetrate Bristol. Of his three regiments, only Colonel Wentworth's remained in action, having slipped between Brandon Hill and Windmill Hill, the one place where the mouths of the city's artillery could not spew roundshot. Wentworth's royalists came to a redoubt in the earth wall and with grenades, swords and their very fingers, blasted, stabbed and clawed a gap through which the infantry could pass. Rupert's men now stepped foot onto Bristol's hallowed ground. At this juncture, fines wobbled. Atop Bristol Castle, the golden glimmer of dawn revealed the breach in his defences and stalked his worst fears, that the prince would cover the city in a fiery glow of his own by setting it alight. The cavalry, Fines deployed in the weakest spot of his line remained inactive as royalists flooded through the gap. All too late, the governor's horsemen attacked, but the royalists roared at them with flaming pike poles which scattered all resistance. Amidst this havoc, Rupert's men pushed their way right to the front door of Bristol's inner shrine, the barricaded Frome Gate behind which Bristol's women stacked defensive woolsacks. Inside Bristol Castle, Fiennes faced a second quite different siege, assaulted on all sides by his officers, who disagreed with his decision to request a parley. They urged him to hold fast, to retreat to the castle with ammunition and food where they could hibernate for months. But Fiennes was not to be swayed. 
To stubbornly hold out against all odds, with no assistance in sight, would be to sign Bristol's death warrant. As such, he agreed terms and marched out the next day, but two hours earlier than the allotted time, whereupon the Royalists plundered and mistreated them. Fines praised Rupert's reaction to this dishonour. They, Prince Rupert and his brother Morris, did ride among the plunderers with their swords, hacking and slashing them, and Prince Rupert did excuse it to me in a very fair way, and with expressions as if he were much troubled at it. The fall of Bristol caused the capitulation of satellite garrisons such as Barclay Castle, Weymouth and Corfe Castle. Bristol's port also gave the king access to Ireland, where English troops could be shipped back to reinforce his cause. The legacy of Bristol was secured at a cost of 500 royalists and a garland of senior officers, which saw the king forbid any more large-scale stormings of cities. Bristol's ultimate legacy was that it gave King Charles one year's respite to win the war. It allowed him to remain in the ring and to fight on before Parliament could sweet-talk the Scots into joining them. And now I'll hand back to Andy and we'll talk a little bit more about Rupert and Rupert's blue coats. <laughs> so in your opinion, so we've just talked about Bristol there. Um, what was Rupert like as a commander, in your opinion? I think your best word, I would have said, is inspirational. Um Rash, maybe, foolhardy, headstrong, but inspirational. And uh, you've got the aspect um, at Bristol where his horse gets shot in the eye and the horse goes down and he, he jumps off the horse, gathers up Lunsford's troops and the other troops who are stuck down in one of the ditches trying to trying to get through and says, right, stop that, out of the ditch, let's go this way, come with me, and took them up to the next gap, the gap in, the, in, the, in the line where they managed to break through. And I think um, the fact that he adopted uh, Lunsford's regiment after the after the battle and they became Rupert's Bluecoats and after that battle shows how much they must have impressed him but also the, the, the close feeling he had with his troops um, you know there's lots and lots of histories of Rupert but in my opinion um, based on you know the books I've read and you know the, the, the various accounts from people like Bernard de Gaulle and people like that mm. certainly he was inspirational I'm not sure I'd have enjoyed being in the cavalry with him because certainly they got taken into some of the worst, <laughs> worst situations that you can look at. But as an infantryman, knowing you've got Rupert with his horse close for some of the time uh, must be fairly inspirational. Commanded shot would be interesting, obviously, with the musketeers in amongst Rupert's cavalry. would have been, I don't know if I'd have enjoyed that so much. <laughs> yeah. uh, but certainly, certainly, you know, if, if, if you're there as Rupert's bluecoats and Rupert's your commander of the, of the whole army, I should think you're going to be feeling inspired by his leadership. Yeah, and, and I mean, all through the war, his regiments were always at full strength as well, weren't they? That's right, yeah. And even at, even at um, Naseby, which is where the regiment got, well, basically destroyed, they were still 500 strong. And they'd fought Leicester you know, a few weeks before that. Um, so still by 1645, they got a full, a full regiment there, um, which certainly helped as the rear guard at Naseby, although they got absolutely, well, practically wiped out. They held the ground at Dust Hill until the king and his party could escape. And so it, was, it was Rupert's Bluecoats and uh, the king's lifeguard just held that ground. And in, in the end, they had to bring uh, cannon up yeah. and uh, Fairfax had to take his own horse regiments in. So they fired the cannon and then hit them with horse from one side and infantry from the other. And various troops did escape, but not many of them. 
Uh, John Russell escaped injured and managed to get to, he was at, he was at the second Bristol actually with, with Rupert and, uh, and stayed with him. And there would have been a few who escaped, obviously, because we can see that from the, uh, the army lists from the indigent officers. So a few did escape. Yeah. It's a guy called William, William Stokes. He was a sergeant who uh, seems to be injured at just about every single battle and who was petitioning for a pension for his for his family. And many sore hurts, as, as he records it. But he, his, his history was really useful because it told us all the battles that the Bluecoats had been in since they sort of started at, at Babylon Hill, which is 1642, very early. Um, so certainly the, the Bluecoats were there in the majority of the battles, not all of them, um, you know, it depends on where they, where they were needed, but they... Certainly during the Civil War, they seem to have a, a fairly heavy impact on the enemy. Places like Storming of Bolton, where they got repulsed twice and then went in the third time and were still going. Uh, you know, there's still other brilliant regiments during the Civil War, but, you know, being a, being a blue coat, I'm slightly biased, I should think. So. <laughs> yeah, and, and at Bristol, how much of a personal impact do you think that Rupert had upon the siege? He was leading from the front. Um, as I've said before, he was, he was there at the, the initial siege work. Mm-hmm. He was there, um, we think, when Herbert Lunsford, who was Henry's brother, brought up Grandison's regiment to reinforce Lunsford's, who'd been, you know, really mashed in the Christmas steps. So he was bringing in reinforcements. He brought horse through at the right time. Um, so I think without him there, I don't know whether the troops would have had the tenacity to get through it because the defences of yeah. Bristol were excellent. I mean, Fiennes was a good commander on Parliament's side, but he made some some fair mistakes. But even so, the defence and the fact that the, the civilians at Bristol were, were opening fire from their windows and, and throwing things and, and generally weren't going to let the Royalists in. It took a real, a, a, an excellent commander um, to get them through. So I think his personal impact was, I don't think they could have done it without Rupert. I think they would have had to rethink things and, and, and got a different way. And I think at one point, even when when they brought him through the line and he was advised to turn the forts on Bristol itself and on the harbour, uh, Rupert refused, didn't he? No, um, yes, because they were talking about setting fire to the boat, didn't they? Yeah, yeah he, did, he, he didn't want to do that. I think he could see, I mean, Rupert was, even by then, he was pretty experienced. He'd been in, you know, abroad in various sieges and what have you. Um, and he knew if you did that, you're never going to get the people on your side if you if you you know completely decimate the place. So his idea was to was to take Bristol and then try and get the 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 residents to come over onto the king's side because it was a, a really vital place. When they kept it for what two years, two two and a bit years until the the second Bristol where um, Parliament then took it. But then by then it was just the, the ragtag of the royalist army that were left over. Um, and you know that's Rupert got into quite a lot of trouble with the king for losing it. Uh, in 1645 so we can see that uh, certainly it was an important place to take okay that, that's great thank you so so if any listeners are interested in joining the blue courts or the sealed knot um, how would they go about it and, and what's the membership cost okay membership costs are uh, for a family 60 pounds for the year 59 pounds for the year um, so you can also join individually as well uh, obviously cur- currently with the coronavirus uh, events are suspended but once we can get them started again, they'll, they'll be cracking on. Uh, the Sealed Knot uh, has its own website. Just type that into Google. And Rupert's Blue Coats have their own website as well. Um, and there's various uh, bits and pieces on there which tell you all about what you can do to become a member of, of, the, of the Sealed Knot. And then obviously more individually, what, if you want to join Rupert's Blue Coats, uh, the, the individual benefits you get from joining that particular part of the knot as well. So uh, it's a fantastic price. That's free camping for the year. <laughs> all the different events. <laughs> Uh, but the, the main thing is that you meet the most wonderful group of friends and that links in to an interest in, in history 
um, and you know, particularly in the civil wars as well. Brilliant. That's been really, really interesting, Andy. Thanks for sharing the insights and your thoughts. Um, and, and really just very apt to have the CEO of the Blue Courts talking about the Siege of Bristol. That's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark, for calling on that one. Thanks for listening to this episode. As I've mentioned before, my aim is to keep the content varied. And amongst other topics, I'll be speaking to a Civil War author very shortly, as well as bringing you some insights from the memoirs of those people who actually fought in the Civil Wars. Why not keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642Author or on Facebook at Mark Turnbull Author. And if you want to read any more about the Civil War, I do have articles on my blog, which can be found at www.allegianceofblood.com. <laughs>